Using the Red Pew Bible, that'll be on page 888, 888. John chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. At least a couple of times every year, people's eyes turn to Jesus. This is one of those times. It's Christmas and people in our society have decided that this is a day when they want to look to Jesus and to remember his birth. Often in um, the springtime, people look to Jesus once again when they remember Easter and they remember the, uh, the Passover of the Jews and the time when Jesus was crucified and they think about his death at that time. If I could wish anything for all of us, if I could wish anything for our society, it would be this. It would be that we don't just look at Jesus every once in a while, but that we look at him and we keep our eyes on him. Because the one thing Jesus wants from you, the one thing he wants from all of us is to have an ongoing and a meaningful relationship. That's what he wants more than anything else for all of us, that, that we could know him, that we could believe in him, and that we could enjoy the relationship that we can have because of what he did, not at his birth, but at the cross. If you notice in our worship services this morning, we observe the Lord's Supper. We do this every first day of the week because that's what New Testament Christians do. We come together to commemorate and to put our eyes once again upon the cross of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, because the cross makes all the difference. It changes everything about who we think we are, about who we think God is. It changes everything. And I'm really, really glad that you're here this morning. I hope that you're glad too. In 2009, there was a quarterback for the Florida Gators that was in the national championship. His name was Tim Tebow. Maybe you've heard of him. And I don't know if you've ever watched a television broadcast of a football game, but football players will often paint underneath their eyes. And the reason they do this is so that the opposing team has trouble reading where they're looking, where their eyes are going. And Tim Tebow in 2009, underneath his eyes, painted John 3:16. And Google said that during that broadcast, when people saw John 3.16 under his eyes, there were 94 million queries on Google to find out what John 3.16 said. Every once in a while, everybody puts their eyes on Jesus. Every once in a while, everybody turns their eyes to God. And I want us to turn our eyes to that thought, that verse specifically this morning. Because brothers and sisters and friends, God loves you and God loves you so much that he wrote his love in red, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. John 3:16. it's been famous for ages. The verse itself goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves you. He loves the world, but he loves you personally, and he wants you to find eternal life in Jesus, his son. That is a tremendous and a life-changing thought. It's what God wants you to ponder and to allow to transform you from the inside out. God wrote his love in red. And in those 24 words that are on the screen there behind me, I want you to think about the fact that it tells us so much about who God is. It tells us so much about what Jesus has done for us. It tells us so much about the love of the God who wants to know you and who wants you to know him. Consider six life-changing qualities of God's love that are just mentioned in this short verse this morning with me, if you would. Notice in the first place that this verse, God so loved the world, it tells us about the expressiveness, about how God's love is expressive. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. In physics, there is a difference between what is called potential energy and kinetic energy. Those of you who like physics, you know what I'm talking about. Potential energy is when you put an arrow on a string and you pull the string back. That's potential energy. You've not yet let the arrow fly, but you've, you're holding it. And sometimes love is like that. It's potential energy. It's not yet let the arrow fly. But then when you release the string and the arrow sails through the air to its target, that is kinetic energy. And brothers and sisters, when God loves us, it's not just potential love. It's not just the idea that... I feel good feelings towards you, but God does something for God so loved the world. And when he so loved you, he loved you not just in his heart, but in his actions. The Bible encourages us in 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Put your love into kinetic energy. Put it into actual expression of love toward others because that's what God did for us when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. Kinetic energy, kinetic love. Love must be expressed to do good. And God so loved you that he gave his son for you. Romans 5, 8 tells us this. God shows, he manifests his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We ought to turn our eyes to Jesus Christ and to remember the fact that when Jesus came to this world and when he died on the cross, it was the ultimate expression of God saying, I love you. You're in danger. There is a problem in your life that you can't solve all on your own. I love you. And this is my ultimate expression, the cross of Jesus. This is my ultimate expression that I care for you and that I want a relationship with you. God's love, brothers and sisters, is an expressive love. You know, sometimes people sit around and wonder, I wonder if God cares about me. I wonder if God loves me. What more would God have to do to convince you that he loves you? What more would God have to do to convince you that he cares about you? He sent his own son to die for you. God so loved. It's an expressive love. 
But not only that, the love of God in John 3.16 is a vast love. It is expansive. It is massive. It is impossible to quantify. How much love does God have? The Bible says in John 3.16, God so loved the world. You ever get overwhelmed by the sheer number of people in the world? You ever get overwhelmed by the sheer number of needs that people have? If you care about people and you care about what's going on in their lives, you get overwhelmed by the sheer quantity of issues and troubles and problems that the world faces. God loves the world. And the way that God shows his love is by giving Jesus for the entire world. John 1.29, John the baptizer pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You talk about lifting a load. You talk about carrying a burden. Jesus bore it all. He took the entire sin of the world upon his shoulders. And the only thing, you listen to me this morning, the only thing standing between you and God is your own sin. The only thing that's keeping you from a relationship with Jesus Christ is your own willfulness, your own selfishness, your own sin, because Jesus has already borne the cost and all he's asking from us is that we come to him and know him and have a relationship with him. His love is vast and it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter what language you speak. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation 7 verse 9, I saw a great multitude of those that serve God. No one could number them. And it says they were from every nation and every tribe and every people and every tongue or language. No matter where we come from, God loves us. God loves you. The love of God is vast. The scripture goes on to say in Isaiah 2 verse 2, there was going to come a time, Isaiah prophesied, when God was going to establish his kingdom and all the nations would flow to it. Wherever you're from, you can know Jesus Christ. Wherever you're from, you can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus did for you at the cross. For God so loved the world. It is a massive, a vast love that God expresses. Jesus on one occasion stood up and said this. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want you to think about the burdens that Jesus took upon himself for our sake. You know, all of us, we try to help other people, I'm sure. I'm quite sure that's the way you want to live your life. I want to bless other people. But it's a risky thing if you've ever done this. It's a risky thing to stand up in front of people and say, okay, everybody who has a need, come and see me. Everybody who's got problems, come and talk to me about your problems. Everybody who's got a burden that you need lifted, come to me and I'll help you with your burden. That's a risky thing. Why? Because you don't have the strength to help everybody. Nobody does except for Jesus. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest unto your souls. That's the rest of the scripture there in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. The love of God is expansive. It is vast. God so loved the world. As you think about John 3:16 and what it tells us about God's love for us, his love, brethren, is costly. It is precious. It is expensive. 
The highest price that has ever been paid for anything was paid for you. Doesn't matter what painting of artwork that sells for however many millions of dollars in an auction, doesn't matter. That pales in comparison to the price God paid for you. However many derivatives are out there in the, in the world where people are worried about quantified trillions of dollars in, in uh, obligations that one company or one nation has to another, that all pales in comparison to how much God paid for you. His love is costly. In Romans 8.32, the scripture says, God did not spare his own son. You think about if you've got kids, how much, how much your child means to you. And the scripture is making that analogy. It's saying the way you love your child, the way you care about that, 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 that child in your life, think about what God must feel. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? And that's a great promise in Romans 8.32 because it's telling us that God's already done the hard part in sending Jesus to die for us and now to give us exactly what we need, to provide for us exactly what's good for us, that's the easy part. If God gave his own son, if he didn't spare his own son, then the easy part is to give us the things we need so that we can be pleasing to him and we can walk with him by faith. That's an amazing promise there in Romans 8.32, but love of God is costly. It cost him dearly. Again, in 1 John 4, verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest. That means kinetic energy. God's love, like an arrow let fly, was made manifest among us in that he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. You can never legitimately say, nobody cares about me. God has shown you the ultimate expression in paying the ultimate price so that you and I can have salvation. God has written his love in the red blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. What else do we learn about God's love in John 3 and verse 16? We also learn that his love is inviting. Here's something to contemplate as you think about your relationship with family. I know a lot of families are here this morning. You're visiting from out of town. We're really glad that you're here. When we show genuine biblical love, genuine biblical love is always an invitation to others to have a relationship, always. That doesn't mean that other people will accept that invitation, but to show love, to keep the door of communication open, to keep the lines, uh, 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 the, the light on, if you will, to do those kinds of things is an invitation to others. And when God sent Jesus to die for you, it is an open and a standing invitation to you. I want you to come to me is what God is saying. And I've shown you that by sending my son to die for you so that whoever believes in him, there is an exclusive aspect to what's being said in John three sixteen. Exclusive to whom? Our sins can be taken away. Whatever you've done, however you've lived, whatever you've, you've been in your life up to this point, all of that can change and you can be forgiven of all that and God will accept you, but only if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him, it's an invitation. Come to me, believe in me, Jesus says. In John 8, 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, 
For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You must believe that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah, that I am the promised one, the one that God had promised for centuries to send into the world. In Acts 16, 30 and 31, the Philippian jailer, upon finding that the jail doors were open but everybody was still inside, he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the first thing, the first thing that Paul said was believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Sometimes people take that verse and they say, well, see, that's all you got to do is just believe in Jesus. And yet Jesus himself says this in Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Believing in Jesus means I put my faith, my, my love for God into kinetic energy as well. It means I do something about it. It's not just giving mental assent. I believe in my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. It's doing something. It's repenting of my sin and being baptized for the remission of my sins. That's the invitation that God extends to us. He says, I love you so much, I want a relationship with you. If you will believe in me, if you'll repent of your sin, if you'll be baptized, you become part of my family, the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. Whoever believes in him, his love is an invitation to you. Can I just ask you a question this morning? If you haven't decided to become a New Testament Christian, maybe this is not the first gospel sermon you've ever heard. If you've not yet made that decision, my question to you is simply this, why not? Jesus has done the hard part. Jesus has died for you. Your sins can be forgiven. What is it about God? What is it about his way? What is it about living the Christian life that is so burdensome in your mind and your heart that you would say, God, thank you for the costly gift, but no thanks. His love is an invitation. What else do we learn about the love of God in John three sixteen? The Bible tells us that his love is insistent. What we mean by this is that we are in mortal danger. God's love is saying that there is a future awaiting you. If you don't come to know me, God says, if you don't have your sins washed away, then your fate, your journey, your end is going to be bound up in this word perish. And that doesn't just mean you go out of, ex out of existence. The word means that you will suffer an eternal fate that is too horrible to even contemplate. God's love is insistent that that future awaits those who do not repent and come to Jesus. And somebody says, well, that sounds like an ultimatum. No, it's not an ultimatum. It's just a fact. We have wronged God. We have sinned against God. And God is saying, this is the fate you've chosen by the way that you've chosen to live. And if you continue in that way, you're lost. You will perish. But if you'll turn to my son Jesus, if you'll put your trust and faith in him, if you'll obey him and become a Christian, you can be saved. That's the insistence of God's love. I insist that you understand and know the danger you are in. Second Peter 3 verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. He wants everyone to reach repentance. God wants that for you. 
He wants that for everybody that you know and everybody that you love, both your friends and your enemies. God even loves his enemies. And he wants us to feel that way as well. Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There is a fate that belies all of us, that's in front of all of us, if we don't change course, if we don't accept what God has done for us through Jesus at the cross. Again, Matthew 25, 41, Jesus himself said more about hell than he even said about heaven. Did you know that? When Jesus came and talked about what lies in front of people, he said a lot more about hell than he ever said about heaven, including these words. He says, on the day of judgment, I will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I hope nobody in this room ever has to experience what that's like. Because Jesus says this is the fate that lies in front of those who refuse to put their faith and trust in me. It's not an ultimatum, it's an invitation, but it's an invitation that is spurred by the fact that reality is gonna confront every single one of us. We don't know when, but we know the, the why because of our own sin, because of our own defiance and disobedience to the God of heaven. God's love is insistent. It warns us about what's in front of us. We would be wise to heed that warning. What else do we learn about the love of God in John 3 verse 16? God's love is eternal. It's eternal. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God came to bring eternal life. My son and I were watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade on TV last night. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but they talk about eternal life because they're gonna go find the Holy Grail that caught the blood supposedly of Jesus and all that at the cross. And, and the guy in the movie talks about eternal life. And he says, eternal life would be great. It's the fountain of youth. You can just live forever and ever. And that's what the movie premise is kind of based on. The idea that you just live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's not what eternal life is when we think about the biblical meaning of the term. Eternal life is not just about quantity. It's about a quality of life, a quality of life, a life that knows God, a life that understands the purpose and the plan and the promises of God and puts hope and trust in those things. It is a quality of life. It's a way of living that is abundant and that is a blessing. And so we can say, even though we have not yet crossed out of this life, we can say, for to me, to live is Christ. Jesus becomes the reason why I do everything. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. People who know eternal life can say those words and mean them. To live is Christ, to die is gain, that's eternal life. Eternal life starts when you're baptized. You are renewed. You become a new creature, a new creation in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And even though you're living in this world, and even though it's hard, and even though you go through terrible things sometimes, you still have eternal life. People who believe and put their trust and faith in Jesus, they possess eternal life. It's about quality even more than it is about quantity. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. 
and that you may have it more abundantly. There's a lot wrapped up in that statement, but let me just say, Jesus shows us the absolute best way to live. There's nobody who does it better and nobody who knows better than Jesus how you and I ought to live our lives. Eternal life. In Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, when Paul prayed for the church, he prayed that the church might know how much God loves them. And listen to just some of the words that he prayed. He says, I pray that you might be able, church, to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about a knowledge of God and knowing how much God loves you so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's talking about a quality of life, a way of living that's not free from problems, but a way of living that knows some really important truths and has a very critical and important hope. And that perspective and that knowledge and that hope will change everything about how we choose to live because we're living for God and we want our relationship to be with him. For God so loved the world, he so loved you that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God has written his love in red. My question for you this morning is this. Have you responded to God's love? Have you thought about what Jesus has done for you at the cross and have you made a change? Coming to him, repenting of your sin, being baptized for the remission of your sins so that you could know eternal life with your Lord Jesus Christ. That's the challenge that God sets before every single one of us. The work has been done, the work was finished at the cross, but it's up to us to decide whether we want that to be a part of our lives or not. If you're ready to respond to the gospel this morning or if you'd like to respond and ask for prayers, heaven's invitation is yours. Won't you make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing?